Welcome to New Books in Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking with Madeline Miller about her new novel, Circe. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical Fantasy Falcon series. Before I welcome Madeline on the show, let me share a bit about my impressions of her book. Circe is an immortal naiad, the daughter of the sun god, Helios, ignored or belittled by her divine kin because of her human-sounding voice, dull-colored hair, and quiet manner, she turns to her little brother for company, and then eventually meets a human man who seems to offer her adoration. Yet her goodwill and nurturing are wasted on these relationships. Stung because the man she loves does not recognize her worth, Circe uses her newly found power of witchcraft to transform her romantic rival into a monster. This act has serious consequences. The new gods of Olympus are angered and demand that her father, a titan, punish her. She is exiled to the island of Aiai, alone at last, without the mockery of the gods. Circe develops inner resilience and wisdom, refining her plant lore and finding companionship among the wild animals of the island. But Circe is immortal, and her island paradise will not remain undiscovered forever. Through the ages, many mortals visit her. Some seek to exploit her, and others appreciate her. Gods visit her island as well. Hermes becomes an occasional lover, and Athena, the goddess of wisdom, a frightening opponent. Madeline Miller makes the ancient myths come alive with her vivid, luscious writing style and her sympathetic portrayal of the witch Circe, a peripheral character in the Odyssey. A little about Madeline herself, she grew up in New York City and Philadelphia. She attended Brown University, where she earned her BA and MA in Classics. She has taught and tutored Latin, Greek, and Shakespeare to high school students for the past 20 years. She has also studied at the University of Chicago's Committee on Social Thought and the Dramaturgy Department of Yale School of Drama, where she focused on the adaptation of classical texts to modern forms. The Song of Achilles, her first novel, was awarded the 2012 Orange Prize for Fiction and was a New York Times bestseller. It has been translated into over 25 languages. Her second novel, Circe, the one we'll be talking about today, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller and won the 2018 L Big Book Award. Madeline's essays have appeared in a number of publications, including The Guardian, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and many others. She currently lives outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. For the past nine years, she's been directing Shakespeare plays, which has deepened her understanding of storytelling. You can keep up with her on her website, MadelineMiller.com. Her first name is spelled M-A-D-E-L-I-N-E, so no second E in that. You can also find her on Instagram as madeline.e.miller, and she is on other social media as well. So now let's jump into the interview. We'll start off with a short reading by Madeline herself. 
With us on the show today, we have Madeline Miller, the author of Circe. And to start off, she's going to do a short reading from her book. Welcome, Madeline. Hi, thanks for having me. Certainly. This passage comes from towards the middle of the novel, after Circe has already started turning men into pigs, which is what she is most famous for in Greek mythology. Um, and the he in this passage is Odysseus. He asked me once, why pigs? We were seated before my hearth in our usual chairs. He liked the one draped in cowhide with silver inlaid in its carvings. Sometimes he would rub the scrolling absently beneath his thumb. Why not? I said. He gave me a bare smile. I mean it. I would like to know. I knew he meant it. He was not a pious man, but the seeking out of things hidden. This was his highest worship. There were answers in me. I felt them very deep as last year's bulbs growing fat. The roots tangled with those moments I had spent against the wall when my lions were gone and my spells shut up inside me. After I changed a crew, I would watch them scrabbling and crying in the sky, falling over each other, stupid with their horror. They hated it all, their newly voluptuous flesh, their delicate split trotters, their swollen bellies dragging in the earth's muck. It was a humiliation, a debasement. They were sick with longing for their hands, those appendages men use to mitigate the world. Some I would say to them, it's not that bad. You should appreciate a pig's advantages. Mud slick and swift, they are hard to catch. Low to the ground, they cannot easily be knocked over. They are not like dogs. They do not need your love. They can thrive anywhere, on anything, scraps and trash. They look witless and dull, which lulls their enemies, but they are clever. They will remember your face. They never listened. The truth is, men make terrible pigs. Yeah, that, I do remember that with the split trotters as well. They're delicate split trotters and losing their hands. So that certainly gives us some insight into Circe. Uh, we're going to start off with some questions about the novel now, and it'll be going more in chronological order. So the first question comes from the first several chapters when Circe is still living in her father's palace. During that time, she meets Prometheus, who is there awaiting his fate. He's the god who bought fire to mankind. Prometheus is prepared to endure suffering for his gift. He does not even beg Zeus to mitigate his punishment. How does this early meeting with Prometheus impact Circe in her later decisions? Mm. Um, so one of the things that I, I was thinking a lot about as I was working on this novel is what it means to be a god in the ancient Greek mythological world. Um, it means you live forever. It means you regenerate. In the Prometheus story, he has um, his liver regenerates, and then the eagle comes and tears it out, and it regenerates again. Um, but m mostly, even more importantly than that, it seemed to me that what it means to be a god in the ancient Greek world is mostly it means that you are a horrible, horrible person, um, and that most of the gods in the stories are incredibly selfish, vengeful, 
um, only interested in their own agenda and their own pleasure. And if you offend them, they will punish you and punish you and punish your children and punish their children and just, you know, never, ever let it go. And today, basically, you know, we would call them sociopathic narcissists. Um, and Cersei is a little bit different than that. She is capable of feeling empathy. Um, and so this meeting with Prometheus was really significant for me because Prometheus is one of the very few gods who we see show empathy and kindness to mankind. In mythology, Prometheus is the one who brings fire to mankind um, and to humanity when they are suffering and you know, in caves and have no way to heat themselves, no way to, you know, cook food. Um, and so Prometheus brings fire to them and in some stories, civilization. And so to have her feel so at odds with her family, but then meet another sort of outcast to her family, um, that seemed just right. I sort of knew from the beginning that she and Prometheus and their stories would, would intersect. Um, and... Prometheus has always been a, an interesting figure to me. And one of the things I, I wanted to be careful with this story of Circe is that, you know, her story naturally touches a lot of other Greek myths. Um, but I didn't want to be shoehorning any in. You know, I didn't want to say, mm -hmm. now Hercules shows up and now Pegasus arrives. And, you know, but Prometheus's story um, felt very close to her story, even though there is no actual myth about the two of them meeting simply because he's a titan, she's a titan, as opposed to the sort of Olympians um, who are, you know, Zeus, Hera, the kind of traditional 12 big names. Um, but also because her father, Helios, who's the sun god, and her grandfather, Oceanus, um, are both a significant part of Prometheus's story. So not only was there a thematic reason, but it made sense plot-wise as well. But I, I wasn't sort of jamming it in. Mm -hmm. There's natural reason for her to be part of the story. Yeah, with your study of the classics, of course, you can make those connections. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So getting back to Prometheus, and, and actually you've already answered a little bit of this, but he tells Circe, not all gods must be the same. And after their meeting, she reflects, all my life had been murk and depths, but I was not part of that dark water. I was a creature within it. Now, I saw some irony in the reference to murk and depth, because Circe is actually a part of a very beautiful family, at least physically beautiful. As you mm. said, she's uh, Titan Helios's daughter. He drives his chariot across the sky every day. And everyone in the family has golden eyes and gleaming golden hair. So isn't it a, it's a little ironic, I thought, that there is so much darkness actually behind that beautiful golden appearance. Mm. Um, you know, I think she just feels so alienated from that, um, from that power. And of course, you know, the thing about the sun god is that for half of the day, he withholds his his light. <laughs> um, his light is, is only for himself. It only it only travels with with him. Um, it's not something that really belongs to you. And so, I, I, you know, here I think Cersei is really speaking to that sort of moral darkness, the mm -hmm. the inability to um, 
see clearly despite having all this light. So, you know, absolutely there is a, you know, an, an irony there. Um, but, you know, and Prometheus, who is seen as an outcast, he is the one who sees more clearly as she does. In your book, both men and gods exhibit indifference or cruelty, but as immortals even more so than men. As you said, the gods are terrible. It's a common trope now in fantasy. We have dark angels and selfish gods. Does the knowledge of our own death give humans an appreciation for the frailty of life and allow us to be a little more compassionate than some of these eternal creatures? I absolutely think so. In fact, you know, I think that this is, a, as you point out, this is a very old idea and an old story. Um, and I think partially it's because it is rooted in something that we can psychologically observe in humans, which is that the more power and wealth and privilege that humans are granted, the less empathy they display. Now, it's possible as a human to work against it, that if you are aware of that privilege and that wealth and the fact that that means that, you know, your life is now sort of up on this, you know, high pedestal and everyone else is kind of down in the mud around you. If you are aware of that and you sort of work to keep your empathy, you can do it. But if you are not aware, your empathy will naturally just start dropping. Um, and you will forget what it's like to have to stand in line or get splashed by, you know, um, a car going by in the rain or, you know, just little sort of in all those like little inconveniences that just, I think, you know, unite us, but also make us feel empathetic and, and connect to other people. And, um, you know, I have never felt more camaraderie than when I'm standing around with a bunch of people after a flight, after like an airplane is canceled. And we're all just disgruntled and, you know, sympathetic to each other and sort of trying to share information. And there's this amazing camaraderie, I think, that can come out of those moments. Um, but people who are totally insulated from that have lost the ability to feel that. Their, their life is so different from everyone else's lives that they, you know, they have basically become gods, the equivalent of gods in their life. So for me, it came out of really um, an observable, you know, psychological phenomenon that they have, they've done tests on. And and I think it's it's a classic sort of literary trope, too. You know, you can see this is kind of the story of King Lear. Mm-hmm. King Lear, um, in Shakespeare's play, you know, he no one has told him no for 80 years. And he, you know, someone finally tells him no. His daughter stands up to him, mm-hmm. and he throws a huge tantrum and explodes his family. And then he sort of spends the rest of the play sort of having to come to grips with the fact that he has really lost touch with what it means to be human um, and with other people. He has come to be this wholly selfish creature, and he is actually able to come back from it. You know, he is sort of able to grow and realize, oh, my gosh, you know, there's this injustice in my, you know, I've been feeding this injustice in my country, and he, you know, is able to kind of psychologically grow. But for me, I think God's for the most part, don't psychologically grow. That's what makes them gods. They are unchanging. They're eternal and stagnant at the same time. Stagnant, um, yes. They're rather, they're actually amazingly dull for being eternal. <laughs> yes, yes. Because I think, you know, not being able to to change and learn, I do think that that is one of humanity's greatest strengths is the, you know, being frail, you fail, and then you have to get up off the floor and try again and fail again. And 
I think we've all experienced failure and that's something that we can have empathy about. But if you never fail, you know, if you never sort of have to struggle, um, I do think that there is that, that there is something positive in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, one hobby the gods do have, though, they rejoice in creating monstrous beings. Yeah? Circe yeah. and the craftsman and inventor Daedalus also create monsters, although Daedalus is pretty much forced to. Circe makes a spell that transforms a nymph, and Daedalus abets an unnatural union between Circe's sister and a bull. And I wondered what qualities those monstrous beings have in common. And could you tell us a bit about how Circe and Daedalus feel about their creations? Mm. Um, well, I think, you know, monsters are, are so, um, they're such interesting sort of things psychologically. There was a recent um exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City called Monstrous Beauty. And it was on all the sort of frightening female monsters and their representation. So Medusa, of course, was mm-hmm. there. Um, I think Circe made an appearance. Uh, Scylla, the six-headed <laughs> you know, monster. There were all these sort of ideas of, of the terrifying, the sphinx, um, who who are are these female characters, but who have this monstrousness to them? I think monsters represent our our fears, um, of course, the things we we are afraid of. And and Cersei herself is very much the kind of incarnation of male anxiety about um, female power in the Odyssey. She herself is often treated as as monstrous in in retellings. Um, but in terms of the monster she creates in the novel, you know. Uh, Part of what I wanted to be working with, with Cersei in particular, was the fact that, you know, she is trying to break free of this very sexist, misogynist society. And she has some internalized misogyny. And in this moment, she makes a choice. She's angry. She feels powerless. And she chooses to lash out at a woman who has, you know, been pretty awful to her, but not awful enough to, you know, turn them into a monster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and she's and, not angry at the man. <laughs> right, right. Of course, of course. And, and that as women, we are there. I was just reading a beautiful book by G. Willow Wilson called The Bird King, where she has the main character talk about how women are taught to waste their anger. And I think that that is so true. It was incredibly apt. Um, in this case, too, that that women are sort of taught to uh, be angry at the at the wrong things, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, at, at you know, and so so that's really what I was looking at with her incident with, um, with Scylla, and and then of course you know I wanted to make her live with that choice, that in the Ovid, which is where I'm drawing that myth from, you know she does it. It's this amazing use of her power. Um, we all know what ends up happening. Scylla ends up, you know, being the six-headed monster who eats Odysseus's men is a little bit of a spoiler, but it is a 3,000-year-old story. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. Um, but, uh, but he doesn't really make her live with that. We never know. Like, is she really happy? Is she pleased? Is she, you know, he doesn't sort of get into that psychological response. And so that was also what I was interested in. And, and the same thing with Daedalus, um, that he is implicated in this in this creating of a monster. Um, and in his case, I was sort of looking at something different, which is that 
in a society which is oppressing, you know, 50% of its population, i.e. all the women, um, you can bet that it is not just 50%. It's going to be way more than that. And that Cersei struggles with sexism as a woman, but there are so many characters in the story that are constricted based on um, other things as well. And I think Daedalus is, is being held prisoner, and he too, like Cersei, is sort of, you know, stuck in this in this bad situation where he's being sort of forced to behave in ways that are, you know, very ugly. And and how can you get out of that situation? Mm-hmm. He's financially dependent on Cersei's sister, and she also has a hold over him with uh, his son. So they are yeah. somewhat powerless. So Cersei seems to be searching for someone who will depend on her and need her. I felt a warmth run through me. Here was something I could mend, she thinks, as a bedraggled group of sailors land on Aya. How does one say that, by the way? I'm sorry, I forgot to ask. The name of her Oh, no, it's, um, I mean, there are a lot of different ways. Aya is how how I say that in ancient Greek. (laughs) Yet, (laughs) though she seeks to heal and nurture, her animal companions are wolves and lions, not fawns and bunnies. So how do you reconcile the different aspects of Circe? Well, I think, you know, people are are complicated, and I I wanted her to be complicated, and that healing, I think, is often associated with sort of this meekness, this mildness, but it doesn't have to be. Um, You know, I think healing can be very powerful, and nurturing can be incredibly powerful, um, so why not, you know, wolves and lions? And yes, they are, um, they are predators, but they're also, it's also sort of a sign of, of her power that they, you know, even as predators, they sort of give way to her. Um, I think Cersei, I wanted, you know, Cersei is, is constantly looking for connection. And I, I think she's looking for someone who will, um, not just someone, not just, a, I mean, it, it's not actually romantic. I think a lot of her searching is, is for a friend, mm-hmm. um, another woman who can, who can understand her. Um, and Circe, interestingly enough, in, in the ancient, you know, materials, particularly the Odyssey, you can really see the influence on her from um, Anatolian and Eastern goddesses. And she almost doesn't really feel Greek <laughs> um, mm. in the Odyssey. She feels like she's kind of coming in from somewhere else. Calypso feels very Greek. Um, but Circe, with her lions and wolves and the fact that she has all this power and the, the sort of the potions, and it just she just feels very different. And, and so um, I studied a lot of and, and looked at the connections between her character a lot and um, great mother goddess characters from Anatolia, like Sibylle, the, the Magna Mater, as the, as the Romans called her, the great mother. Um, and Sibylle herself is also associated with lions. She's a chariot drawn by lions. Um, Eastern goddesses like that, you know, Inanna, um, they're often associated with birds of prey. Mm-hmm. Circe's name means hawk. And so, and they, they're, they're very much this sort of creator destroyer figure. You know, they're, they're incredibly powerful. They can cause death, but they can also bring life. And sort of both those things were accepted. Um, and so in, in looking at Circe, I thought, you know, I don't have to, it's okay for, for her to be both frightening and healing for her to, you know, we often sort of, 
um, feel like that's a contradiction, but it didn't feel like it had to be for me. She says of herself, endurance has always been my virtue. Now, Cersei is eternal, and I didn't understand that statement. She has no choice but to endure. How does she perceive herself, and what does she mean when she says that? Mm. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that gods, we were talking a little bit about the nature of gods and how they don't, they don't really ever have to try um, mm-hmm. because they never, you know, they're, they just, their power, unlike witchcraft, you know, witchcraft is something you have to work at. It is a craft. It's a vocation. It's like any art where, you know, you, you try and you try and you get better and you learn and you try and, um, you know, divine power for her father, for example, is just, I think it, and it is, and it exists, you know, it's the old kind of zap and it's created. And so I think what, what Cersei has, has come to endure, in my opinion, is, is um, she has come to endure her own failure and her own weakness and pain, you know, mm-hmm. that the gods hate pain and they, they seek to avoid it in every possible way. But Cersei um, learns to endure that and to sort of work through it. And I, I had a, an old Latin teacher who um, used to say that the, the students who do best in sort of, you know, their lives are the ones who have the greatest tolerance for failure. Right. <laughs> um, that, you know, natural gifts will only get you so far. And then at some point you're going to hit a wall. And the question is, are you going to be able to get back up and keep going? Um, and so I think, I think Cersei has that ability and maybe it's because she, you know, was never one of these big gods to begin with, or maybe it's just something it's that will, that will in her, but that's sort of the endurance, um, not just living, but struggle, struggling and not just giving up. Yeah, trying out things, she develops her power during the course of yeah. the novel. She doesn't, she's not born endowed with instant power. That's yeah. so true. So Cersei has two nieces, well, at least two, Ariadne and Medea. One is the daughter of her sister, and one is the daughter of her brother. Both of them fall in love with heroes defying their respective fathers to help the man they love. Both are visited by misfortune. Uh, Can we generalize and say that in Greek mythology, falling in love and defying authority tends to lead to disaster? (laughs) Um, Definitely defying authority does, uh, particularly for women, that most Mm -hmm. female characters who behave, even if they're, you know, betraying their father for their, for their husband that, you know, there is some like cultural messaging that's going on, heavy cultural messaging about, you know, look what happens with these women who have power, they end up, you know, they, they end up dead. Um, Or, you know, although Ariadne's story is a little bit different because her, um, there are a couple different versions of kind of what happens to her. Um, In one version in the, in Homer, she is killed by Artemis um, in this sort of weird, it's a little unclear what exactly happened. Um, But in other versions of the story, she is left on the island and Dionysus comes 
and takes her as his wife. How she feels about that is not recorded. Um, so, you know, is that better than death? <laughs> Unknown. Um, but, you know, it, it's so, but definitely this idea of sort of women who have power being punished is completely a theme. Um, love itself, that sort of defiant love, that disordered love, where, you know, you're you're sort of running away with someone, that also does tend to, you know, result in um, in a bad end. But, um, so yeah, it's, it's bleak for women with power and women who, who try and choose their own path. And in fact, one of the things that's kind of extraordinary about Circe in Greek mythology is she is one of the very, very few female characters who wields independence and authority and is not punished for it. Well, perhaps um, that's why you thought she might have her roots in the East. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's why. That's sort of what I mean when I say, yeah, exactly, that she doesn't really feel Greek mm -hmm. <laughs> the same way. Well, are children generally expendable in the world if the Greek gods and heroes? And uh, it seems like they are. If so, tell our listeners a little bit about how that differs from the way that Elias and later Circe relate to their own sons? Um, well, I think, you know, the loss of a child is, is one of those things that is absolutely timeless. You know, it reaches across the centuries and the millennia. You know, parents losing children is one of the, the great griefs of humanity. Um, and, and in the Aeneid, Priam, the dying king of Troy, the aged king of Troy, as the city is falling around him, watched. Um, he has to watch one of his sons killed in front of his face. And, and he says, you know, this is this is the ultimate horror to have to watch your child die in front of you. And so so the ancients were very attuned to that to that grief, as of course, you know, as of course they would be. Um, but it's, you know, and there are a lot of dead children in their stories and a lot of dying children and and of course they didn't have the medical you know facilities that that we have today and so children did die at a higher rate so they were forced to confront that grief um a lot more and so i really wanted to look at um the parent-child relationship Daedalus and Icarus, I think, is one of the great sort of parent-child pairings. We don't always see a lot of great dads in ancient no, literature. No, we don't. Um, and, yeah, and so I was thinking, you know, so, so that really appealed to me as part of their story. Um, that, you know, here is this dad who is is a single parent trying to take care of his son and, you know, truly loving him and sort of stepping in and, and being a parent. And then you have Cersei also as a single parent um, raising raising her son. And I one of the things that is interesting about epic literature is how much sort of women's lives get kind of pushed to the margins. But epic literature is traditionally about male protagonists doing traditionally male things. So things like war, arguing over inheritance, um, extracting vengeance, these types of things. And, and things that are about women's lives kind of are, are not considered important enough to headline an mm -hmm. epic. 
so part of what I want to do is is bring Cersei's life as a woman um, and give it that same full epic scope that a man's life has been given sort of by right. And so things that are important to her life, craft, weaving, gardening, <laughs> you know, these are not traditional epic subjects, um, but they are incredibly important to her and raising children. One of the things that um, I find so unusual and, and sort of strange about the Odyssey is that in the Odyssey, Odysseus's son, Telemachus, um, doesn't know his father at all. He is an infant when his father leaves. Odysseus is away for 20 years. And when so when he comes back, you know, his son is 21 or something, somewhere right around there. Um, and there's all this talk about how much he's like his father and he looks like his father and he acts like his father. And over and over again, we're sort of reminded of the connection between Telemachus and his father. But if we're thinking psychologically, Telemachus has been raised by his mother. He's not going to be like his father at all. He doesn't even know his father. You know, he may appear like his father, you know, in terms of, you know, he may have his father's eyes, as Helen comments. Um, but in terms of how he's going to behave and his emotional way of being in the world, he's going to be like his mother. And I always felt like their relationship as mother and son, you know, with her raising him as a single parent, was kind of obscured. And so Cersei's motherhood was important because I feel like she is doing this incredibly hard thing. Um, you know, parenting in itself should be epic, right? It's life or death. It's incredibly mm -hmm. high stakes. It's incredibly emotional. Um, so it was important for me to give that, that relationship and, and that work that is usually shouldered by women. It's due. So we were speaking about great dads and not so great dads and that brings us again to Odysseus, because at first when we meet him on Cersei's Island, he's such a sympathetic figure. And like his men, he thinks through consequences before he embarks on action. And he recognizes the worth of something when he sees it. But later, Cersei learns from his son that Odysseus commanded him to put slave girls to the sword because they came into intimate contact with men he regarded as his enemies. This shows us a new side of Odysseus. Does he have the ancient Greek version of post-traumatic delayed stress, or uh, is it just his warrior mm. lineage, or what makes him yeah. get like that? Yeah, um, you know, the ancients didn't have a word for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as we do today, but that they absolutely understood it. Um, and there are so many really interesting projects out there where, for instance, uh, I forget what it's called, maybe it's, I think it's called the Philoctetes Project, where they will actually, um, there's a group that actually stages particular Greek tragedies that clearly deal with PTSD, even though they're not using that word, mm -hmm. um, with veterans in America. And, and it's been this incredibly powerful and successful program because these sort of things that soldiers struggle with, you know, are still very present with us. So um, I would argue, and I others agree, that at the end of the Odyssey, Odysseus does show some PTSD. Um, you know, and as who would not, you know, he has lived through 10 years of an absolutely brutal war, a, a horrific sacking of a city, and then 10 more years of just, you know, danger and horror and deprivation. All his men die, over 600 men, 
Um, he himself is menaced by, you know, the Cyclops and six-headed monsters and cannibals and just, you know, danger after danger after danger. And then he comes home to his little island, you know, with goats and, and rocks and olive groves. And that would be incredibly hard. And, and he's confronted by a threat even on his own island, which is the suitors. Mm-hmm. And so he kills all the suitors in the Odyssey. These are the suitors who are um, living in his home, consuming his stores, trying to get Penelope, his wife, to marry them, and threatening his son. And in the world of sort of Greek mythology, it makes sense that he kills them. That sort of feels like, okay, that's justified. Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. been abusing him and his hospitality. He kills them. Okay. But then, as you as you say, he goes on. Um, and he kills all the people who helped them, and then he kills all these slave women who were, you know, oftentimes it said they slept with the suitors, they had affairs with the suitors. That's, I think that's a very dubious way to put it. As you <laughs> were very clear in saying, these are slaves, right? They don't have, they can't say no. There is no consent there. Um, you know, if the suitors say, sleep with me, you know, that's rape. They have to say yes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Odysseus seems to have no understanding of that. He he is, you know, enraged, um, and then when the suitors' families come to say, you just slaughtered all our sons, his immediate instinct is to kill them as well. Just go on killing. And that's when Athena comes down and says, okay, enough. And that's the end of the Odyssey. It sort of ends on like a god has to come down and stop him. Um, so absolutely PTSD was something I was thinking about. Um, and I was thinking about it in, in two ways. One is the fact that you know, he he has that hypervigilance, that sort of feeling of being threatened all the time and that all these situations are life or death situations. And if he doesn't act, then he will himself be killed. So he definitely has that that part of it. But there's this other sort of thing that is is kind of a, a cousin to PTSD. I, I did a lot of reading about veterans experiences um, and sort of people talking about, you know, the ancient world and the modern world and um, and one of the things that they talked about is that there are people who really thrive in war. Mm-hmm. There are people who, as horrible as it can be, um, you know, they just war, they're sort of the adrenaline of it, um, you know, the sort of thinking, the strategy, all of that, they, they thrive under those situations. And Odysseus seems like he would fall into that category. You know, here he is. He has succeeded beyond almost anyone's dreams. He's the best of the Greeks after Achilles. And um, he's incredibly respected and admired. He's the one who brought about the end of the war. He is this famous figure. And can you really just go back to your little island after that and just be a, you know, kind of farmer king after that? Um so I think there's that that is acting on his character, too. So thinking about him, I'm always thinking about the psychology of it. And the other thing that I, I often say is that in the Odyssey, the I would describe the Odyssey as the most positive portrait of Odysseus from the ancient world. And it's not even that positive. <laughs> that, no. um, yeah, that a lot of the other depictions of him, you know, we've come to think of Odysseus as a hero, as lovable. He's got this great wife. He's smart. He's the trickster. We, we love all that. But the ancients really saw him as a very mixed figure. 
um, you know, he's a liar. He's a he's a sneak and a deceiver, and he's constantly manipulating other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to bring in some of those more disturbing parts of his personality. Um, you cannot trust anything he says. He lies his way across the Odyssey. Do we ever really see the real Odysseus? I think at one or two moments in the Odyssey, we see an actual genuine reaction. Um, but for the most part, he is, He's constantly um, sort of processing the world for his advantage. And, and I think that, that that does something to you that's not healthy. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, it doesn't didn't surprise me that after he left Cersei's Island, that he has seven more years before <laughs> he gets home, that he sort of continued to go in a bad direction. Yeah, he's a little bit like one of Cersei's other lovers, Hermes, who's also um, very conscious of the effect that his words have on people, and he's always looking for responses. Uh, She meets several men over the course of the centuries. We could say some are romantic relationships, some are just flings. And then at the Mm -hmm. end, one becomes significant enough for her to really change her life. And this Mm -hmm. last relationship has generated some controversy. Did you struggle with the portrayal of the relationship at all? You know, I didn't. Um, uh, So this is actually grounded in the mythology. Um, So again, kind of a spoiler, but she... uh, so, you know, cover yours if you don't want to hear it. But um, she she ends up with, in the in one version of the mythology, she ends up um, with Telemachus, Odysseus's son. And there's another part of that myth that goes on to say that Penelope marries Telegonus, Cersei's oh. son with Odysseus. Okay. Yeah. And there's like a sun swap thing that happens. I did not go down that route. <laughs> that would <laughs> be a, a little extreme. Yeah. It would be a little extreme, but also um, I my, I never saw my telegonist as being straight, so I never saw him being interested in, in marriage to mm-hmm. Penelope. Um, but also I wanted Penelope's story not to end about, you know, which man she was connected to. I wanted her story really to end with just herself mm-hmm. um, because there's so much in the Odyssey about, oh, is she going to pick this guy? Is she going to be with Odysseus? Is, you know, her father-in-law, her son, it's all about sort of her, this triangulation around every man in her life. And I wanted her to end, you know, without that. Um, but with Cersei, you know, I think she... Her journey in my novel, I imagined as being very similar to Odysseus's journey um, in the sense that he is looking for homecoming. He's looking for his home. And she, too, is looking for a sort of home, Um, except she doesn't have a home like Ithaca waiting for her. She has to kind of invent her own home, Mm -hmm. her own people. She has to find her, you know, the place where she feels comfortable in the world. Um, And part of that is, you know, is finding a close friend, which is there, finding peace with herself, finding peace with her son, you know, working through finding a way to live with her father um, and and finding, you know, is it possible to have a positive relationship with a man in a world that is so sexist? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is it possible to be respected in a relationship with a man? Um and 
I I really thought about it and you know, to me, Telemachus and Circe just felt like they made sense. They both have incredibly difficult fathers. Um, they are both survivors. I think they have both struggled to walk their own path, um, and they understand the value of that. They have sort of rejected traditional ways of being and sort of chosen other ways. Um, I think that, so all of those things, and they love craft. They're both you know, really interested in kind of working with their hands and they, they, so they share that in, in common. Um, he's a carpenter and she's a, she's a, um, a witch, of course. And <laughs> she's so a I was thinking about, yeah, an herbalist, exactly, an herbalist. Um, and so I was, I was thinking of that it just, it just made sense to me that, um, that they, I, I, I saw an opportunity there. And I wouldn't have just kind of crammed them into that relationship if I didn't really feel like it felt right. Um, I allow my characters to kind of move and shift over the course of the novel. And if I had gotten to the end of the novel and, you know, my Circe had said, forget Telemachus, I want to end up in a relationship with Penelope or I want to not be with anybody or I want, you know, Mm -hmm. all these sort of wherever my character was sort of. I I never put my characters in a vise. I try and let them choose their, you know, sort of grow and develop organically. Um, but this, it just, it just felt, it just felt right. I felt like, um, so yeah. So, and I, I think that was, that was ended up being kind of a key part. You know, Penelope is, is one really key part of her ending and Telemachus is another. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are you working on now? Is, uh, are you working on another book based on a Greek myth? Mm, um, kind of. Uh, I'm working on two projects right now and I'm not sure which one I'm going to finish first. So they're both kind of in the, in the mix. Um, one is inspired by the Aeneid, which is the other great ancient epic love of my life. <laughs> That's the, that's the story of the Trojan refugees who escape the ruins of Troy mm-hmm. and then go off to try and find a, a homeland. Um, and I love Virgil. He is, he's a brilliant, brilliant poet and a great humanist. And so I love, I love sort of working with his world. And then the other thing I do um, is that I also direct Shakespeare plays. And so I have this background in Shakespeare. Uh, and I've always been interested in, in writing about The Tempest. So I'm thinking about The Tempest. Okay, well, thanks so much for taking time out to talk with me today. I've enjoyed having you on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to us today on the New Books Network and Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I've been talking to Madeline Miller, the author of Circe. To find out more about Madeline, visit her website, madelinemiller.com. Check in with New Books Network in May when we air an interview with Rebecca F. Kwong, the author of The Poppy War. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy falcon series, which begins with The Falcon Flies Alone. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at Gabrielle Author. My name is spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. Hope you'll tune in in May.